One of the most beautiful love stories in the Bible is a story related to Pentecost. And yet the word love occurs in the book in regard only to a relationship between a woman and her mother-in-law. It is the story of Ruth. So this sermon is going to be a stylized exposition on this little book to draw lessons about building relationships in Christ, the theme for our singles weekend this year. And in this book, we're going to see revealed the spiritual powers that propel human relationships, both human and divine. The title of this sermon is Relationship Lessons from the Book of Ruth. The Book of Ruth is our eighth book in our Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament rather, and it has four chapters, 85 verses. It's a short book, and it's sandwiched in our Bible between Judges and 1 Samuel. And Ruth serves as a link between the time of the book of Judges when there was sporadic tribal leadership and God's monarchy, which will lead up to King David. It's a story of love and loyalty, devotion and redemption, set in the upset context of the time of the Judges, a period of turbulence and unrest, tribal jealousies and foreign oppressions, Idolatry sapped the spiritual strength of the Israelites. It was a time of moral and spiritual degeneracy, national disunity, and general foreign oppression. And it's called the Book of Ruth not because she's the author of it, but because she is the principal subject and heroine of the story. However, the book begins and ends with her mother-in-law. The current position in our English Bible, the book of Ruth, is not the same as that of the Jewish Bible today. As you know from what Jesus said in Luke, the Hebrew Bible is divided in three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And the Jews have placed this book in a small subsection of the writings called the festival scroll, the megalot. And these five books were to be read at festivals. Not necessarily God's holy days, but the Song of Solomon was read at Passover and Ruth was read during Pentecost. And many Jews will be reading Pentecost over this Shavuot is what they call it, time period. Lamentations was saved for the ninth of Ab. Ecclesiastes for the Feast of Tabernacles and Esther for Purim or Purim. But Ruth occupied this second position because it was to be read at the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. In Jewish tradition, King David was thought to have been born and died on Shavuot. It's an appendix to Judges. But in the ancient Hebrew Bible and the Greek Septuagint and the Latin Vulgate, it occupied the same position as is currently in our English Bible, that is after Judges, because that's the time period in which it fits. We don't know who the author is for sure. It's anonymous. Jewish tradition said it was Samuel. Um, the literary style shows that it was written during the early monarchy period, so scholars tell us. So let's go on to consider 
date. Do we know when it was written? Uh, the date of composition also is uncertain. It's in that era. And the story takes place in the latter part of the Judges, maybe around 1100 B.C. It was a time in which rebellion and immorality prevailed, spiritual moral decline, and yet there's a remnant of people who hold fast, who show integrity and righteousness, a glimmer of hope in an otherwise dark era. It's a Hebrew short story full of dialogue. It's like a dramatic play in four scenes that more or less match our four chapters. And it skillfully develops the characters of the story. It has special key phrases and wordplay and dialogue and careful organization. And what we gather from this book include, it tells us more about the customs of the times, almost more than any other Old Testament book. It helps us understand family life in ancient Israel of that era. And it's an incomparable love story that explains some unusual marriage customs that we'll look at. And it tells us the magnificent example of divine sovereignty working with human autonomy. How God worked through the tragedies and joys of life, famine, death, loneliness, voluntary exile. This is its deepest message, how God continued to work with this handful of faithful people. And the place of women in God's plan is prominent in this book. Two Bible books are named for women. Ruth, a Moabite who married an Israelite, and Esther, an Israelite who married a Persian king. Of all the books of the Bible, Ruth is special in giving us a woman's perspective. At that time, in that culture, women were especially dependent on their fathers and then their husbands for their provision. And they could own property only in exceptional circumstances, as Numbers 36 shows. And the action around this story revolves around family relationships. So let's go to the book of Ruth. You may want to put a marker in here as we look at it, Ruth chapter 1. And here is Act 1, or Scene 1. And we're in the country of Moab, of all places. A part of the story that will last about 10 years. So let's start now in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, there were two Bethlehems at least, he went to dwell in the country of Moab, he, his wife, and his two sons. Now that phrase that begins the book, it came to pass, five times in our Old Testament, and it denotes impending trouble, followed by a deliverance. So it starts off with, a, uh, with tension, but it'll end up happily. The period when the judges rule. Now, we have a wrong image of judges today if we think of the black-robed lawyers in court. Uh, judges at that time were chieftains or tribal leaders. And this is the era of about 400 years leading up to the period of the monarchy. As I said, a period of apostasy, warfare, decline, violence, and anarchy. And the story portrays the other side, that there's a godly remnant who remain true to God's laws. Religion is at a low ebb. Personal faith, though, remains strong among a few. 
And that faith will reside among the common people. And that story naturally precedes leading up to the story of King David. And we'll see how this connects with David later. It was a time of famine, very likely as a result of their disobedience and apostasy as God had warned in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. God seems to be absent, but he is far from being absent. He is ever present. Even with this family, takes flight to Moab. They're from Bethlehem, about five miles south of Jerusalem. This will later become David's hometown. But why leave Bethlehem to go off to Moab? I mean, after all, Bethlehem means house of bread. Bethlehem. And they leave the house of bread to go off to a country that God calls, in the book of Psalms, his wash pot. Moab means waste or nothingness. Why do they go off to this far country? I mean, it worshipped another god called Chemosh, that, at least in one verse in our Old Testament, seems to have been worshipped with human sacrifice. Well, apparently there was bread, there was food in Moab when there was absent in Bethlehem. And Elimelech takes his family there. Here they go off to a country who had denied Israel bread and water when Israel was leaving Egypt on their way to the promised land. They will later hire Balaam to curse them. That's the people, the people of Moab. Moab was a region east of the Dead Sea. So this was a journey of about 50 miles around the north end of the Dead Sea and then south going into Moab. The terrain was rugged. And steep, the trip lasted perhaps seven to ten days. These Moabites were of a sketchy history. They were descendants of Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his relationship with his older daughter. You remember that from the story in Genesis 19. Now verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Of the tribe of Judah they were, and all these names have meanings that often depict their role or their fate. And Elimelech means, my God is king. Naomi means something like pleasant. Malon, indicating perhaps his health, means sickly. And Kilion, frail, failing, pining, consumptive. Apparently these two sons were not in good health. And things will not go well for them. They're called Ephrathites because that was the general region around Bethlehem. And then verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She's now a widow, and she's left with her two sons, whom, upon whom she depends for her provision. Verse 4. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth, and they dwelt there about ten years. They marry women of Moab, and yet God had said that the Moabites were not to enter the congregation of Israel for up to ten generations because of the way they had mistreated Israel in their journey to the promised land. Some scholars think perhaps that only applied to the males. 
Orpah means stubbornness or back of the neck, apparently. But Ruth, this is the heroine of our story. Her name means friendship, friend or companion. And she is listed in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus among four women, Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba, as well as Ruth, all of whom received God's marvelous grace that Mr. Ames described for us. Verse 5. Then both Malon and Kilion also died, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Destitute. No, no husband, no sons to provide for her. Things look mighty bleak. And Malon happened to be Ruth's husband. We're not told that until chapter 4, but just so you know at this point. And verse 6, Then, speaking of Naomi, she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and was back home, back in Bethlehem, by giving them bread. Now, the, the word return occurs ten times in this chapter, and it, it can mean changing one's physical environment or having a change of mind and loyalty, what we would call today repentance. And she, here we have in verse 6, the author mentions that the Lord, or Yahweh, had visited his people by giving them bread. Yahweh, the one first of 18 times that this name occurs in this story, he becomes the, uh, the, the center of the book as far as the, their deliverance. And God's people today know that Yahweh is the one we now call Jesus Christ. So for the sake of this sermon, I'm going to refer to him as Yahweh Christ. And when, I, when we read through this and we see those words, the Lord, I want you to think Christ. Because that's our theme for this weekend. Building relationships in Christ. So this verse displays his mercy in providing bread again in the land of Israel. And this is first of two direct acts that God takes to rescue this family. We'll see the second one in chapter 4. And so he gives these people bread, sometimes a word used in general of food. Now verse 7. Therefore she went out from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And then verse 8, And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Look at this bond of affection between a mother-in-law and these two younger women. And I want you to notice that she tells the, the younger women to return to their mother's house. This is very rare in Scripture. It's unexpected since men were the traditional heads of households, but the story focuses on women. And the mother's houses are mentioned only a few times in her Old Testament, usually in connection with marriage. And so she's saying, go back and have your moms help you find a good man to remarry and get established again. Childless widows were normally portrayed as returning to their father's houses, but in this case she says, go home and have your mothers help you 
arrange for a remarriage. And now the Lord, she says, I want you to notice what Naomi says to the girls or the young women. The Lord deal kindly with you. The first of several blessings in this story People commonly blessed each other using God's name. The Lord deal kindly with you. Either in a greeting or as they would part. The Lord deal kindly. And I want you to look at that word kindly. This word's going to occur at least three times in our story. Hebrew chesed. It's been mentioned in recent sermons here. And it means loyal love. In other words, she's asking God, Yahweh, Christ in this case, as we now call them, to deal kindly in covenant love with these two foreign women. Naomi hopes that God's covenant love will extend to these two non-Israelite daughters-in-law. Now, custom at the time, Oriental custom, bound the girls to her because she was their mother-in-law. But she's not going to compel them to begin a new life in a foreign land. Instead, she let them free to remarry and set up homes in their home country. They don't need to devote their lives to me, she thinks. So she sets them free to make up their own choices. This represented considerable sacrifice on Naomi's part, for in the normal course of events, she would look to these two younger women to provide for her and serve her when she's old. But Naomi is an example of mothers-in-laws, mothers-in-law, in that she is more concerned about their future than her own. So here we are, three widows, no men to support them. Naomi's going back to a land she had left 10 years earlier, not knowing how she's going to support herself, let alone two other widows who are foreigners from idolatrous Moab. Verse 9 she says, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And you know what she says? I pray that God gives you rest. Rest. A term that she will mention again later is security found in marriage. That's how women were provided for. And I pray that God will give you again a happy marriage. In the house of your husband, Young widows would be able to find financial security if they remarry. In verse 10, they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. Verse 10. But now verse 11. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that, sh- that they may be your husbands? 11 to 13. Turn back, my daughters, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should bear sons, would you wait for them till they are grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of eternal is gone out against me. What is she referring to here? She's referring to a custom that you and I are not familiar with, a custom called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage, from a Latin word, levir, meaning brother-in-law. And in the book of Deuteronomy, God told Israel that if a man who was married died, then his brother was 
obligated to marry the widow and raise up children through her in the name of the man who had died. And the property would stay then in that family. That was the law of levirate marriage. And so Naomi says to the girls, I'm too old to have any more sons for you to remarry, to perpetuate our family name and keep property, you know, within our own family. So she says, my daughter, you see verse 11, my daughters, look at this affection, this bond of love that she has for them, even though they're not of the same culture as her. My daughters, she calls them, close relationships that she has built over time with these young women. She is kind, she's accepting of them, and she sets an example for us today. So turn back, my daughters, I'm too old. And she tells these young women three times, go back home. She's insistent. She tells them this in verses 8 and 11 and 12, three times. Go back, for I'm too old to have a husband. Would you wait? Would you wait that long, even if I could bear more children? But she doesn't have a husband. And so she says, it's best for you, considering everything, that you go home. Verse 14, and then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. The three weep again, and Orpah goes home. She didn't do anything wrong. And that's what Naomi wanted her to do. But Ruth does something different. In fact, as the story will progress, we'll see something better. Their responses are contrasted here by the author. And Ruth unexpectedly stayed with her impoverished mother-in-law. And God's going to reward her for her faithfulness by bringing her into the family of the line of the Messiah. Verse 15. She said, look. Naomi says to her, look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people, to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat or urge me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This is some of the most beautiful language of our English Bible. Or in any language for that matter. Her beautiful words are unmatched in Jewish or Christian literature because she commits herself to another person. And she even refers to God by name. Yahweh do so to me and more, verse 17. And so what's going on here with Ruth? Other than what you and I would today call a conversion. She's going to turn her back on her past, and she's going to cling to her God now, the God of Israel, and to her mother-in-law. We could call this a conversion. And she is building a relationship with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she's now building a relationship with her God. Based on a commitment. I will not leave you. And where you die, 
I will die. Where you go, I will go. Where you live, that's where I'll live. Your God shall be my God. And this use of Yahweh's name shows her commitment. She's forsaking all past gods that she worshipped in Moab. And like Abraham, she's turning her back on her gods, her family, and her country. To go to a foreign land and trust the Almighty to provide for her and her children to come. This is the greatest level of commitment. You see, in Moab, when you died and you turned to bones, the bones of all your ancestors were collected in a common place. And she does not want to be buried with her own flesh and blood. Verse 18. So when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two went out until they came to Bethlehem in verse 19. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? The women said, is this Naomi? They haven't seen her in over 10 years, barely recognize her. But she said to them, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara, as the margin shows, bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She feels that God's hand has come down very heavy on her because she's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. She's very depressed, very discouraged. She said to them, verse 20, them is feminine Hebrew. She says to these townswomen, don't call me Naomi. Which means pleasant. Call me bitter. She's at a low ebb. And yet, look at the example that she has set for Ruth. And in this verse 20, when she talks about the Almighty, that's El Shaddai. El Shaddai. Verse 21, I went out full, and the Eternal has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Eternal has testified against me, and the Almighty El Shaddai has afflicted me? I've come back empty. This is one of the themes of this story that will prevail. We'll see how God will fill that void and fill that emptiness in the rest of the story. 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. But she thinks God has afflicted me because dying without an heir was considered a tragedy in the ancient Middle East. But God had provided a way through leveret marriage for that problem to be resolved. They return, the theme of return again, and it says they return, both Naomi and Ruth, and yet Ruth evidently had never been there before. But, you see, this is all part of this conversion process of returning both to God, both childless, both widowed, Lowest level of poverty, no doubt, and yet they show courage, they show resourcefulness by making their way in a world in which men were dominant. And so Ruth now enters a new land. The roles are reversed, whereas Naomi had gone to Moab, now she goes to Judah. She's an immigrant. And I want you to notice in verse 22, the last sentence, at the beginning of barley harvest. This is why the book of 
Pentecost, Ruth is read during Shavuot because the early harvest, the first fruit harvest of barley began after the wave sheaf ceremony during the days of unleavened bread. And when that was over, then the wheat harvest, about a seven-week period, May and June. And so Shavuot came at the end of this second harvest of wheat. So they arrived somewhere during unleavened bread time back in Bethlehem. Now, Act 2, Chapter 2. A field in Moab, sorry, a field in Bethlehem, which might have only lasted a few weeks or months. Chapter 2, verse 1. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Now, the word wealth can also be translated as worth. In fact, it's the same word that Boaz will later use to describe Ruth, that she was a woman of worth. And so he too, this man Boaz, was a man of high character, high standing in the community. His name means in him is strength, swift strength, suggesting a possible solution to Naomi's dilemma. Who is he? Why, Matthew, in Jesus' genealogy, says he was the son of Salmon and Rahab. Without much question, Rahab, the Canaanite harlot, who had hid the Jericho spies. Verse 2. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him, in whose sight I may find favor. And she said, Go, my daughter. So Boaz is a relative, an important word that we're going to notice throughout this story. Let me go to this field, Ruth says. The status of widows in the Middle East was difficult at best, but God had commanded Israel. At harvest time, when you're gathering in the crops, you're not to clean the fields entirely. Leave the leftovers, leave the corners for people who are destitute to come in and glean for themselves. Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. And Ruth fits three out of these four categories. And so now, she again, in verse 2, is called my daughter. Go, my daughter, Naomi says to her. You see this bond of affection, a term of endearment. In verse 3, and then she left and went, gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. There's a connection to Naomi's family. She happened to come. Her hap was in the King James. It looks like chance, but here is divine sovereignty acting through human autonomy. He guided her to the right place at the right time because God is moving in the lives of this faithful family. And so now in verse 4, she's working among the reapers there, comes into the field of Boaz, verse 4, Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, Yahweh be with you. And they answered him, Yahweh bless you. See how people greeted each other in that time? So this shows us Boaz has strong working relationships with the workers of his field based on mutual godly respect. 
respect. And I'm sure it was a pleasure to work for this man, Boaz. Look at the respect. He brings God's name into their general conversation and greeting. Verse 5, Then Boaz said to a servant who is in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? Whereas in the New Revised Standard, To whom does this young woman belong? Who is her father or who is her husband? Verse 6, So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And verse 7, And she said, Please, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning till now, though she rested a little in the house. You notice when she came, she asked them politely, Please, let me glean with you. Showing her decorum. A lack of presumptuousness. She's a resident alien. She cannot expect anything. But she's requesting. Kindly. With respect. And her request is going to go beyond. Even what most people would have done. Perhaps in that time. And so now. She says let me glean. And gather. Among the sheaves. Bundles of grain. And to lift them up, I mean, shows her stamina, her persistence, her strength. And Boaz now is going to show extraordinary concern to provide for her. Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves, verse 7. So she came and has continued from morning till now, though she rested a little. And then verse 8, Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not glean in another field, nor go from here, but you stay close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink freely from what the young men have drawn. Boaz is showing her respect and kindness, because he has heard how faithful she has been to her mother-in-law. And here Boaz begins to build a relationship with Ruth. Mr. Rod McNair provided a link to an article by Emily Esfahani Smith in The Atlantic entitled, Science Says Lasting Relationships Come Down to Two Basic Traits. Science says lasting relationships come down to, you guessed it, kindness and generosity. And what is Boaz doing here but showing her kindness and generosity? He is now building a relationship with this woman based on kindness and generosity. You work here. You'll be safe among my female workers. When you're thirsty, you go and help yourself. You stay here. Don't go to another field. We will look after you. Verse 9, let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? You see, poor foreign women were especially vulnerable to assault. And he gives clear instructions to his men to leave her alone. Any minute, I'm sure. So follow behind them. Usually the men cut the grain, and the servant girls follow behind the men cutting the grain to bind the grain into sheaves. So Ruth could then glean 
what they left behind. Now verse 10. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take no notice of me since I'm a foreigner? A foreigner. She calls herself an immigrant, a resident alien. And she will later call herself a maidservant, the lowest level of all the female servants. And then she will refer to herself as servant, a little bit higher level. So her relationship will continue to change throughout this story. In verse 11, Boaz answered and said to her, It's been fully reported to me all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and mother in the land of your birth and have come down to a people, come to a people whom you do not know before. Again, like Abram, she left her God's country and family to serve the one true God in a new land, the promised land. Verse 12, he says to her, The Lord repay your work, and with a full reward be given you by the eternal God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Boaz explains that she had shown chesed, loyal love to Naomi, and now he's doing that in return to her. He gives her a blessing, asking God to reward her, pay her wages for her loyalty, and refers to Ruth as coming under the protection of God's wings for refuge. He recognizes her sacrificial relationship with Naomi, and he honors it. Verse 12 One of the important verses of the entire book. Work, full reward, refuge. You see, it's a combination of faith, of effort, and of God's intervention. Let a full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings, verse 12, you've come for refuge. Picturing a bird stretching out her wings over her young. And you've come to trust in this God. You've fled for refuge to this God. And I want you to remember that word, wings, for later. The message of the book, seeking shelter from the God of Israel. And it's going to be rewarded. This is the essence of building relationships in Yahweh Christ. Relationships must be built on a commitment to God and to each other. And so in verse 13, she said, Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord. For you have comforted me, and you have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I'm not like one of your maidservants. She thanks him for his kindness, his unexpected kindness. And she says, You have spoken kindly. You see in your margin there, you've spoken to my heart. Boaz touched her in the heart. And he's winning her over. He spoke to her heart. Here, Ruth begins to build this relationship with Boaz, who showed covenant love to her. And Boaz repeatedly demonstrated God's compassion towards this Moabite women, going above the letter of the law. Now verse 14. And Boaz said to her at mealtime, 
Come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. He continually demonstrates God's mercy and provision for her and he offers her vinegar, kind of a sour wine and oil mixture that was very refreshing to these workers at that time. Verse 15, And when she arose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Leave her alone. She not only picked the grain, but she separated the kernels of grain from the husk by beating them with a stick. And he instructs his workers to not shame her, to leave her alone. Let her work by herself, quietly. 16. Also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. And the King James says, handfuls of purpose. Let these handfuls of purpose fall for her to pick up. Leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. Now verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. <clears throat> she beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of grain. Ephah. About two-thirds of a bushel. She has shown hard work due to Boaz's generosity. And then she took it up, verse 18, went to the city to her mother-in-law, who saw what she had gleaned. And so she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today? Where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and she said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Ding. No doubt a light went off. Oh, Boaz. Okay, I recognize that name. Boaz. Verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the eternal, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, this man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. A relation. In the Hebrew, goel, 13 times that word occurs in the book, refers to that kinsman, guardian, redeemer, guardian, who had the opportunity and duty to intervene to save this family financially, to marry a widow, raise up children after the name of the deceased husband, and to keep the property within the family. She recognizes that Boaz is one of those goels, and she recognized God's kindness to her, and that Boaz has shown to them This is the blessing of God that is going to rescue them from sure ruin. And so now verse 21. Ruth and Moabite have said, He has said to me, You shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that people do not meet you in another field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest. 
and we'd harvest. Now, we're close to Pentecost. And that's why the Jews, to this day, read this story around Shavuot. And she dwelt with her mother-in-law. Act 3, chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security, margin, rest for you? Remember that from earlier? I'm going to seek rest for you. She had earlier in chapter 1 prayed that God would give Ruth rest or security by a remarriage. So now she says, My daughter, shall I not seek rest, security for you, that it may be well with you? So on the one hand, she asked God for intervention, And secondly, now, she's going to combine works with her faith by seeking a husband for Ruth. You see, gleaning was short-term, but now she's planning something long-term. You see, if we want strong relationships with Christ, with each other, we can't sit back and wait for them to come to us. We have to take action. And here's what she proposes. Verse 2. Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. That was the master's work, and his servants plowed, sowed, and reaped. But he'll be there tonight, customary for the landowner, to spend the night at the threshing floor to protect his grain from thieves. And the threshing floor usually was on the east side of town. And the threshing was done late in the day in a public place where the animals would tramp the uh, sheaves and the husk in order for the evening breeze to separate the wheat from the chaff. Or it was thrown into the air to, again, separate the chaff from the wheat. Threshing was apparently carried out only by the men, so Ruth's presence could arouse suspicion and gossip. Let's see how it proceeds from here. But Naomi knows the cultural ways of her people, and so this is why she's come up with this plan. Verse 3, Therefore, wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on your best garment, And go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. Anoint yourself. As we might say today, put on some perfume. Put on your best garment. The outer garment that she would wear at night to keep warm as well. In other words, she's dressing her like a bride. This is the way God describes Israel in the book of Ezekiel when he says, He wanted to marry this young woman, Israel. It's the way she's attired, the way she is bathed, the way she is anointed. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But don't make yourself known until the man has finished eating and drinking. It's a time of festivity, usually only for men. Naomi's instruction to Ruth to bathe, anoint herself, and get dressed could indicate that her time of mourning for her deceased husband is over. And she's now available, you see, for remarriage. That's the next step in this story. They joined action with their faith, but not 
before they had first established a relationship with God and with each other. Verse 4. And then it shall be, when he lies down, that you shall notice the place where he lives. And go in and uncover his feet. And lie down, he'll tell you what you should do. And again, this strikes us as rather odd. What in the world? Well, it all has to do with leveret marriage. And if we don't understand the custom of the time, we totally miss what's happening. And we make wrong assumptions. To uncover his feet was to remove the edge of Boaz's outer garment from his feet and lie next to his feet as an act of submission. In fact, Daniel uses the word feet in the sense of legs. So yes, it's a daring and dramatic action, but what she's doing is calling upon Boaz to make a decision and act as her kinsman redeemer, which meant not only redeeming the land and saving it in the family, but marrying her and raising up Seed with her children. Verse 5. She said to her, All that you say to me, I will do. Ruth says to Naomi. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all her mother in law and instructed her. And she actually will go beyond what her mother in law instructs her, as we'll see. Verse 7. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was cheerful, He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. She came in secretly, so no one would see her. She's protecting Boaz from embarrassment in case he decided not to exercise his right, his duty, as a close relative, kinsman redeemer. Verse 8. Now it happened at midnight. The man was startled, and he turned himself. And there was a woman lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a Goel, a close relative. Boaz had prayed for Ruth that God would take her under his wing. And now Ruth in turn says, Boaz, I'm asking you to wrap your robe around me. Which in Ezekiel 16 was an example where a young man would propose marriage to a woman by wrapping his robe around her. It was the custom of the time. Protection. Security. Wrap, take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. A goel, 13 times the word appears in this story. She's seeking his refuge. And as the marginal note of the Jewish study Bible says, this is a formal act of espousal. It is definitely a marriage proposal. That's boldness. But again, it relates to the customs of the time. Verse 10. And then he said, Blessed are you of the eternal, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning 
in that you did not go after young men, whether rich or poor. He has even deeper respect for her as she is willing to comply with the customs, the law of God from the Torah. Boaz now is going to tell her he's interested, but there's a problem, as we'll see. And now, my daughter, don't fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now, it's true, I'm a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. That's the problem. There's another relative who stands between them who is closer and has the first option as to whether he will marry Ruth. Boaz reveals why he's taken no action at this point. He is older than Ruth, perhaps 20 years his senior, it's estimated, and he's not the nearest kinsman. But he thanks her for her chesed that she has shown to her mother-in-law. And I will do for you what you've asked. And yet, he is not the brother of Ruth's deceased husband. He's a distant relative, but he's not a brother. But he agrees to this arrangement out of kindness rather than obligation. You notice in verse 11, he calls her a virtuous woman, a woman of strong character, a virtuous woman. The same word used in the virtuous woman passage of Proverbs 31. She's an outstanding example. Proverbs 31. She has moved up the ladder. Now she's a virtuous woman. As a result of her dedication to the Almighty, to Naomi, and to this family. But there's a closer relative. You see, by this redemption of land, the next of kin was to buy back the property and if it had been sold to foreclosure or poverty, it was, which is happening here with Naomi and Ruth, since Naomi was beyond childbearing years, her daughter-in-law Ruth could become her substitute in marriage, bear a son to perpetuate the family name, keep the property in the family. So he tells her now in verse 13, you stay here this night. In the morning it shall be that If he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good. Let him do it. But if he will not do it, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down till morning. Boaz wants to take immediate responsibility for Ruth and Naomi so she would not be exposed to danger by going home in the middle of the night. Tells her you stay because... In the morning, it would appear she just arrived in the morning to get some grain. But he agrees to this proposal. But but only if this other relative chooses not to act upon it. So 14, she laid his feet till morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. And then he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor, lest her presence be misconstrued, He's concerned about her reputation as well. Now 15. He said, bring the shawl that's on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley, laid it on her, and she went to the city. You notice ephahs in italics here. More likely it was seahs, six seahs, about 60 pounds in all. 
of grain that she would have to lift and put on her shoulder and take that back home. 16. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Naomi said, Is that you, my daughter? Then she told her, All the man had done for her. Is that you, my daughter? You're back? How did things go? You can just imagine how excited Naomi is and curious. What's going on? But Naomi understands God's sovereignty because she, she has faith. She's making a change in her own life. She's seeing God beginning to respond in marvelous ways because of their faithfulness. And she said, these six ephahs of barley, verse 17, he gave me. For he said, don't go home empty-handed to your mother-in-law. You see, emptiness to fullness. Over and over, that happens in the story. So she said, you sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest till he's concluded the matter this day. So you sit still. This prepares us for some sitting in chapter 4, Act 4. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, relative, and sit down here. So he came and sat down. Now the, the, the gate was like a town hall. It's where legal, commercial, judicial matters were settled, official legal business. In verse 10, verse 2, he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down. So he sat down like a quorum. Ten men. Verse 3. Then he said to the close relative. Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, told, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. Verse 3. Actually, the King James says she's selling. And verse 5 indicates that the sale is still in the process. And she's giving him the option. But I thought to inform you, saying, verse 4, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then I will. Tell me that I may know, for there is no one but between you, or there's no one but you to redeem it, and I'm next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So this closer relative says, yes, I'm interested. Boaz recognized his relationship with the relatives and the townspeople depended on honor, integrity, and honesty. He doesn't want to jump the queue, jump the line. He gives this man full opportunity. And Boaz said, verse 5, On the day you buy the field from the land of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabite, it's the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead throughout his inheritance, or through his inheritance. Verse 5, and he's talking about Malon, Ruth's husband, who had died, of course. Verse 6, and the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. He's not being irresponsible. He just recognizes he perhaps financially cannot afford it. And if he raises up seed with Ruth, they might get all of his property if he doesn't have a son by his, his other wife. So he says, I cannot do it, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. 
And so now that frees up Boaz to take action. And so, verse 7, it was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal, gave it to the other. And this was a confirmation in Israel. The sandal was like a set of keys or signing of a document. It was a legal transaction. The sandal sandal symbolized the sincerity of a man's walk in life. And so a sandal would be passed from one man to another. And therefore the close relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. He took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and the people, You are witnesses this day. I have bought all its Elimelechs and all its Kilions and Melons from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Melon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through this inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and his position at the gate. You are all witnesses. This was done in public view. He makes a statement. We would say it's like a husband at the marriage ceremony before the minister saying, I do. You all are witnesses of what I intend to do. And so all the people, verse 11, at the gate, the elders said, we are witnesses. The eternal make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, Israel's founding mothers, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Look at the graceful words, the affection, the respect that all these people have for these heroes and heroines of our story. Verse 12, may your house be like Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Another sordid story from Genesis 38. Tamar, Canaanite, childless widow like Ruth at one point. May you be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the eternal will give you from this young woman. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception. And she bore a son. You see, conception, children are a gift from God. And God rewards her faithfulness. And this is the second direct action of God in this story. The first was in chapter 1. Then the women said to Naomi, verse 14, Blessed be the Eternal who has not left you this day without a close relative. May his name be famous in Israel. You have a goel. Blessed be the Eternal who has not left you without a goel. Not Boaz in this case, but the son that will come from Ruth and Boaz will serve as Goel, Redeemer, for Naomi to preserve her name, her husband's name, her family name, and property. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, verse 15. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. You see the word loves? The only time the word occurs in the whole story. And it's Ruth who loves Naomi. 
The townswomen recognized that Naomi's relationship with Ruth benefited her more than if she had had seven sons of her own. 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom, became a nurse to it. She establishes a close, tactile, bonding relationship with this new child. You see, this story is full of relationships. It revolves around relationships. 17. The neighbor women gave him a name. That's very unusual for the women, the townswomen, to give the boy a name, but Here's the story. Calling him Obed, meaning servant. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And so this boy is the grandfather of David. Here is how these women enter into the very family of David and eventually the Messiah. And then verses 19 to 22 We have ten generations of David's genealogy. It's a remarkable story because God has stepped in. He has filled the emptiness of these people in a time of famine and personally in the lives of their destitution. Obed begat Jesse and Jesse begat David. That's the way the story ends. Now let's look at these three primary characters of our story for lessons for us today. Naomi, here is a model mother-in-law. No, things didn't go entirely smoothly in her life. She could have been crushed and paralyzed by the loss of her husband and her sons, but she took action. And she shows love for these women who are outsiders, the Moabite women, including Ruth. And she goes back to her home country, taking action to do something to improve her lot. She is a responsible and interesting woman in her own right. And then we have Ruth, who teaches us the importance of true conversion. A woman of moral worth and character, who left her God's left her family, left her land to enter into the family of Judah, Elimelech, Naomi, a woman of moral character, a virtuous woman, because of her faith, her determination, her character. And then Boaz, a man of moral worth and character, who goes above and beyond to be generous to this family, displaying obedience to the spirit of the law, going above just the letter. He was called a man of worth, and indeed he was in the end. You see, brethren, all three of these primary characters teach us lessons on building relationships in Christ. What a magnificent story it is to read on Pentecost weekend. This story has inspired generations of Bible readers throughout history because its truths are eternal. They're eternal. This story has moved from emptiness to fullness, from barrenness to fertility, from death 
to life. It's a redemption story. Redemption. Building relationships in Yahweh Christ is multi-layered. God shows covenant loyalty to us. In turn, we show it to him and we show it to each other. The relationships we build with each other must be motivated by and in response to his covenant love for us. The book of Ruth fittingly describes the love relationship God has with his Pentecost first fruits.